Welcome to another episode of In My Own Words. I'm your host, Corey Timms, and with me in the studio today, I have my friend, yeah. Cook County Commissioner and Global Head of Public Affairs and Policy, Bridget Gaynor. Commissioner, thank thanks for joining. Well, Corey, thank you for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> so I like to start yeah. each episode with a lightning round of questions. Let's do it. So you just tell me the first answer that comes to your mind. Okay. What was your best concert? Bruce Springsteen, Soldier Fields. Okay. Uh, sometime in the 80s. I'm not going to tell you when. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite movie of all time? Bronx Tale. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, not even close. Okay. <laughs> By a mile. Who's a leader that you look up to? Uh, so probably a combo platter. I, like Dorothy Day is my kind of spiritual mentor, if mm -hmm. I think. It's just, I mean, she's obviously not, she's not a political leader. I think... Uh, I appreciate someone like a Jimmy Carter or even Jim Florio, who was the governor of New Jersey, like people who made a really hard decision and lost, mm -hmm. but kept going at it because, you know, politics, I think generally is like, is about disappointing your base at a pace that they can absorb. Yeah. That doesn't mean you don't bear the consequences, but yeah. I love that. You don't really hear that people who made a hard decision and lost. Yeah. But you admire them because they kind of knew they were probably going to lose when they did it, mm -hmm. but they did it anyway. Okay. What's the best piece of advice anybody ever gave you? Oh, um, the best piece of advice anyone ever gave me. I think, is this different than words to live by? A um, little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so best piece of advice, uh, you know, I, well, there's a funny one, kind of. I, when I started my job at Aon, I, there was a, all this, um, this, food set up on a banquet table and uh, or like a conference table and we were a bunch of people were gathering for the meeting mm -hmm. and I was about to walk over there and start unwrapping the food to you know get something and one of the older ladies is like don't touch the food <laughs> and I was like what she goes, don't touch the food because inevitably you're going to be over there and someone's like hey honey grab me a muffin <laughs> and you're going to totally throw off any kind of game that you think you're bringing to this meeting but I think that's a metaphor for lots of other things you okay. know Make sure you're always putting yourself in the best possible position. I love that. Yeah. And then last question is, uh, what's a mantra that you live by? That's easy. So I always think, like, don't tolerate things for other people that you wouldn't tolerate for yourself. Mm, that's also a really good one. Mm, okay. I think, uh, yeah. I think about that a lot with the land bank, especially. But, yeah. Which we will talk about. We will absolutely <laughs> talk about it. Well, thank you for Who participating. Who doesn't want to talk about property taxes? In the, in the <laughs> Everybody wants to talk about it all the time. You. Well, thank you for participating in our lightning round of questions. So, um, as you know, I start every episode talking about upbringing. Yeah, you know, okay. I think it is so important in shaping who you are and what you become. Um, you grew up on the south side of Chicago yeah. in the Beverly neighborhood. And so, St. Barnabas, for those of you who are listening to the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what did, how, how did the south side um, mold you into who you are? Um, and what does it mean to you? So, you know, I, I think the well, and, and I know I'm not going to get a lot of argument from you, but like, like I think the South Side is in many ways the most iconic place to grow up mm -hmm. in Chicago. People are connected in a way that you just don't find in other parts of the city. It's not like other parts of the city aren't awesome and have their people and have their neighborhoods and have their community. But there's something about the South Side that makes you feel like you're connected to anyone who could have been four or five years on others, you know, above or below you, mm -hmm. could have been in a whole nother neighborhood on the South Side. Like if, if I meet someone from the South Side, it takes us like 
two seconds, two two degrees of separation to figure out who we it's know. Not six In some degrees, ways, it's, like it's not six. And also, it's like sometimes you'll see older people, and they're like, it's almost like they have to race to figure out what they have in common. Like, okay, wait a minute, where are you from? And and then you inevitably know people in common. Yeah. But I think that stretches, and that's just not like, oh, you only know the people from your neighborhood, or you only know the people from your ethnic background are you like I think it you know when I started working at City Hall what I found is you just I don't know there was something about the way that people on the south side could connect with each other black white Latino across the board yeah so you know I was I always think whenever my kids come home and they're like oh I met so-and-so oh yeah where are they from I didn't ask them that. How could you not ask them that? That's like the most important question you could ask anyone. Tells you everything you want to know. Do I want to bother going forward? You know that. Or they'll say, oh, I met somebody and their mom's from the South Side. Where? I don't know. Well, like, where'd she go to grammar school? I don't know. Why would I ask someone that? So I was like, I, I don't just want to know where they're from. I want to know where they went to grammar school. Cause that, that is an age-old Chicago question. <laughs> I want to know that question. The answer that, once you tell me that, then I'm going to determine how much time I'm going to put into this relationship. Yes, I, yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so you went to University of Illinois. I did. And got your uh, bachelor's in English and political science. Yep. And you went on to University of Chicago and got your MBA. Yeah, years later. Year, yeah, okay. big space. Yeah. And um, what I think, so most people would probably know you from Cook County Commissioner. Yep. And then also your work with Aon. Yeah. But a lot of folks, including myself. Uh-huh. Um, would probably be the surprise to know that you actually started as a community organizer, first in New York with uh-huh. the Jesuit Volunteer yep. Gore, yep. and then back here in Chicago um, or organizing around education issues. Yep. And so talk to us a little bit about how you got your start um, and then what drew you to community organizing. You know, so I was at U of I, which is great. You know, went there like lots of people. It was really good education. And um, but I knew once I graduated, I wanted to do something service oriented, Peace Corps or some, you know. And and at the time, um, the Jesuits had, had like a lot of other religious orders of Catholics, at least, had uh, a program where you could, you know, go for a year. And I lived in a lay volunteer community. I lived in a rectory in a t- in a neighborhood called Crown Heights. And it's in Brooklyn. And the neighborhood's fascinating. It's half Orthodox Jews and the other half is West Indian, like Jamaican, Haitian, Trinidadian. And so we lived in the rectory of the parish there. And uh, it was a trip. So I lived with other people. I was trained as an organizer and I worked for a guy named Jeff Canada who started the Harlem Children's Mm. Zone. He was my first boss. And then also worked under an organization that was run by uh, an order of nuns, Sisters of the Good Shepherd. And... They both were incredible organizers, and it really taught me. The interesting thing is what I learned from Jeff Canada, but also what I learned from the the sisters was years later when I went to business school at University of Chicago, it was, it was similar lessons, just a different focus, mm-hmm. which is the most important thing you can do is understand what someone's incentive structure is. What is it that they want? Yes. Because once you understand what they want, then you can figure out if it's at all applicable to what you want or how to join in common cause and go forward. But you also understand how to bring them over to your side. It's, you know, it's the reason like you, I always ask the question where someone's from. Mm-hmm. It's, even if they're not from Chicago and I'm not going to know them, but it just tell, oh, you grew up in a small town or you grew up in this place or, you know, yeah. it, it tells you a lot about how someone's mind might work and the things they might find important. So, the organization was an Alinsky-style organizing. So Saul Alinsky started in Chicago, mm-hmm. but a lot of Catholic organizations ended up using that model. And it's something that has literally led my work to today, including the land bank, which is 
you know, you got to get people organized in their own progress moving forward. You cannot come in from the outside and be like, I'm so smart that I, you know, I have a good heart. I want to get to the answer. So I'm just going to tell you what the answer is. You should just follow me. It doesn't work like that. You got to talk to, you got to have a hundred conversations Yeah. because at the end of that conversations, those, all those conversations, you're like, Oh, okay. Now I know this is the actual answer. This is, this is the thing we need to do. But you've also, now they're on your side and now they're working together for something. And they also have to have skin in the game. Yeah. You cannot just come from the outside with ideas or the outside with money and think that you're going to be able to make change in a community because it just doesn't work that way. It's not you, sustainable. You have to be able to resonate with, with those neighborhoods and they have to really believe in and, and get behind what you're talking about. Well, yeah, but mostly they I have the answer already. They yeah. may not have the resources or they may not have the time to ability to focus on the next thing because mm-hmm. they're too busy. But there's a ton of things you're going to learn that you don't know. Yeah. You know, ironically, like Friedrich Hayek is a really famous Austrian economist. So years later when I'm at UFC and I'm studying him, and he was always railing against Soviet Union central planning, like five-year plans made far away. He's like, because the further you are away from the ground, the less ability you have to actually assess a solution for a problem. Mm. And that is no different from, from community organizing. And so um, it just – it also, you know, it's also about human dignity. I mean, that that's the other thing that, that Catholicism as well as many other religions really focuses on, like – Every single person has their own human dignity, and we have to really kind of focus on that if yeah. we want to move forward. So let, let's fast forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. You so after after organizing, you got the government bug, and you yeah, went. I you went, went to work for Rich Daly. You yeah. did. So you started as a budget analyst. Yeah. So a, after I left New York, I came. I ran a community center at Sun High School, mm-hmm. and which is an interesting. Arnie Duncan actually ran the community center, both funded by MacArthur at Kenwood Park, mm. uh, Kennecott Park. And so we started at the same time, and and he was in a school. I was in, I was in a school. He was in a park. Did that for a couple of years. Met Rich Daly that way. Ended up going to the budget analyst, budget office, because um, somebody told me once who was at City Hall. There's only two places that actually make decisions: the budget office and IGA. So pick one of those and go there. <laughs> and so I went to the budget office. I, I went to IGA. There you go. <laughs> we got good advice. And then you transitioned to the Chicago Park District, and you were yep. director of Lakefront Parks. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd like to say it was a lot of thought went into it, but, uh, you know, I got called down to the mayor's office like two days before I was getting married. And he was like, hey, you're going to go to run the lakefront parks. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, there's someone in that job now. Go over there and have an interview. It's all going to work out. <laughs> Super awkward <laughs> in the beginning. But I was like, all right. I could imagine. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to leave to get married. Don't make me come back and like, then you've changed your mind about the park district job, but I've already cleaned out my desk. So <laughs> that the park district job was amazing. I like, I love the park district. It's, it's the only thing in the city that everybody rich, poor yeah. uses. So I have a lot of affection. Love the park district. Did you yeah. always know that you wanted to go into government eventually or was it? I kind of always thought I did. You know, I mean, I always loved politics, even at, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I remember like I did a lot of reading when I was a kid and I remember reading Boss. I think I was in fifth grade at the Walker Branch Library on 111th Street. And I thought government was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was the thing that could actually make it, you know, they got to make decisions. They got to make things happen. It was interesting. Okay. I liked it. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So in 2009, yep. um, which was a big year for you. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you were appointed to fill the Cook County Commissioner uh, seat that was left vacant by now Congressman Mike Quigley. Right. It was the um, Barack Obama domino. Yeah. <laughs> he got elected president, took round to his chief of staff. Quigley went into that job. And then, then I um, 
I knew I was going to run. Quickly mm-hmm. wanted as chief of staff at the time, um, who's actually now running for alderman in the 46th ward. Mm-hmm. And but the, you know the committeeman had the votes and. I got the votes for the, and it was nine months of an appointment, and then there was an election. So talk to us a little bit about the process of deciding whether you want to run, because it's such a huge Mm -hmm. decision to make, right? And you're thinking, uh, is it the right time? Can I raise the money? Um, Will I have the support? So what was your thought process to determine uh, whether or not you were going to run? Because you said it very surely, like, I knew I was going to (laughs) run. You know what? I probably was very naive at the time of what was involved. Mm -hmm. I had thought about running against Mike four years before, but then found out we were expecting our, my, now my son. Um, And so decided not to do it. And then when I thought, oh, there's an opening. If I don't go for it now, it's not going to happen. And and you'll appreciate this. I mean, having been at City Hall mm-hmm. and Mayor Daley was still the mayor and knowing how the dynamic works between the council and the mayor, I thought, I don't know if I can really be independent with over at City Hall, like, because there's no room to, there was less room to navigate. I thought the county would be interesting. Plus, when I came back here and I was working at Sen High School, I was down at the juvenile detention center all the time. I'd always worked in that issue of young people and youth development. And all those issues were compelling to me as a person, Mm -hmm. the things the county deals with. So I was like, oh, I can do that. And, um, you know, the the district is interesting. It's the lakefront, which is very left-leaning. And then it was the northwest side, which was a lot like the southwest side where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So it felt really comfortable. And it was a good combo. And I decided I'll go for the appointment. I don't think I'll get it, but at least it'll put me in the position to run. And but I got the appointment, so it ended up working out great. Very cool. Yeah, I, I love the fact that you you knew for certain that that you were um, gonna run. Yeah, because um, you, especially now you have so many young people that are interested in pursuing elected office, and um, some are successful, some are not. Um, but you decided to to step in, go all in, and so yeah. I, I love that you decided to take the plunge. Well, and I also felt like. Look, growing up in the 19th Ward, and, and you're from a similar type of organization place, like, I knew I could do the field work. Mm-hmm. I could get the signatures. I could go door to door. I would have people that would help me on the volunteer basis. So, like, I was really comfortable with that part of the campaign. Yeah. Raising money and all that other stuff, I, I didn't have a clue. But I knew at least I could execute that part. So it wasn't too scary because I had done campaigns always, you know. Okay. So you you have such a unique perspective, and, and I know we've talked about it before, mm-hmm. because you have um, the government perspective as somebody that has worked in government, now as an elected official. Um, yep. But you also have a private sector background as well. You know, yeah. you've, you've ascended in Aon and become the, I love this title, <laughs> global head of public affairs right. and policy. Right. Whatever that means, but yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and I think that that gives you such a unique perspective, mm-hmm. um, particularly when you're trying to tackle some of these major issues. Um, so one, talk a little bit about uh, your career and how you transitioned into Aon and mm-hmm. became the global head of public affairs and, and policy. Well, look, it has a really good <laughs> Chicago beginning to it. <laughs> so a woman that I worked for at City Hall mm-hmm. went over to Aon, and I at the time was at the Park District, and she called me up and she said, we need somebody here to run like operations around mergers and acquisitions. I was like, well, I don't know anything about that. But I was in business school at night. I was going to school at night while I was working at the Park District. And uh, I said, what is it? She said, well, you have this target company and you got to know everything about them. And then you have to figure out what this good about them, bad about them. You got to figure out who's going to buy it, mm-hmm. research the market, pitch it to them. And then by like some date, you got to execute and sell it. And I said, well, that's like kind of like a campaign. Yeah. It's like a candidate. So I said, okay, I probably do that. And I'd never been in the private sector. I had no idea really if I would ever do that. 
But I was getting ready to have kids, actually, at the time. And um, the city, I mean, I don't even know if they have maternity leave yet, but they sure didn't have it 21 years, 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so, and I loved my job. You were on call all the time, you know, especially in the summertime. I was on call constantly. Yeah. This was when I had a pager, so I'm going to date myself. <laughs> um, but, like, I would get a page from the mayor's secretary. He rode his bike down Lakeshore Drive, and the garbage cans are too full. I was like, it's August, Monday morning. What do you want? Okay. <laughs> I'm out there what, what do you want running me to do? around. Doesn't matter. You know, what, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go there. Get rid of that garbage. Yeah. There's a fish floating in the harbor by North Devon. Okay. I'm on it. So I just thought, you know, I'll try this out. I'll make a change. And I did that on the really on the finance side, which is really probably not my strong suit, but did that for a couple of years. And then um, the opening came up in a kind of a government affairs position. Now, Anne doesn't really have any business in the city, so mm -hmm. it's not like that. It's more really more global or globally oriented. And I've done a lot of different things. I started a public sector business. I worked on a big M&A transaction, but I also now co-lead our climate strategy. So I'm with uh, someone who's based in London deciding how we at the firm are going to move forward and actually really try to address decarbonizing what our clients do, reducing the carbon footprint, mm -hmm. and leaning into the climate investments that I am. So it's been fascinating, and it's a, f a fabulous company. They, you know, five years ago there, um, we started an apprentice program, and with full support of the CEO, it's a great case, like really committed because, you know, our workforce was very non-diverse and we were only hiring from the same places like everybody else. Yeah. All the jobs required four years of college. But we thought, we looked at all of our entry-level positions and thought, which ones really require college versus where had we just gotten in the habit of hiring for college? Mm -hmm. Found a bunch that didn't probably really require college. We just always hired from this because it's a kind of shooting fish in a barrel. You go down to college and it's like accounting, marketing, IT, they're all in one place. Yeah. So we did a partnership with the with City Colleges of Chicago. So, I mean, I could see Harold Washington College from my window at Aon, but we'd never hired anyone from there. Mm. So now we're six years into a partnership with them, and we have hundreds of apprentices. But more importantly, we've it's a two-year program. We yeah. hire them out of City College, but we've recruited 160 other companies around the country. And now there's thousands of apprentices around. There's in eight different cities in the U.S., um, and Juan Salgado and City Colleges have been an amazing partner. But now we have a hugely diverse majority-minority class of incoming apprentices every year. And it's it's been a new doorway that's opened up into corporate life. I love that. And that's what I love. It's one of the things I love about working at Aon, that they're really, really committed to the things that are real. Less less about, you know, making big statements and making big speeches, but oh, more about – Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's not their way. Um, they're really doing the work. So I love it. How has um... – Working in the private sector influenced how you lead on the government side? It absolutely has because, you know, it's really easy when you're in politics. Mm -hmm. you, you're in camp. Like, it's us and it's them. And it's easy to vilify the people that are on the other side of you. Um, but really what you figure out is they're not opposed to you. They just want different things. Mm -hmm. And so what I really have to constantly figure out is this is what I want to accomplish. But how are you going to make sure that everybody else can live with it? Yeah. Because – you know, every once in a while you can really shove something down. But, you know, we're seeing – we're watching what's happening in Paris right now. When you try to proceed with something without a vote, it's not really that sustainable. <laughs> I mean, I'll be curious to see how that works out. Yeah, but me too. <laughs> it's hard. But it's made me more pragmatic on both sides. Mm. Um, 
because, you know, politics is a lot about intuiting and listening to what people really want. Yeah. Because so much about politics isn't just about executing on things to do with business. It's people's lives, you know, um, their safety, their health, their their ability to afford a, a home. Those things are emotional as well as, as financial. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be able to really be pretty bilingual when it comes to being effective in politics. And... And that's true in, in any large organization, business included. I mean, it's just it's run by humans, yeah. so you got to figure out how to get things done. Okay, you you mentioned this earlier in a couple of times during the interview about the Cook County Land Bank, mm-hmm. and January marked its ten year anniversary, yeah. and yep. you were one of the big advocates behind the creation yeah. of the Cook County Land Bank. I was. And, and so, talk to us about why was it so important to create the land bank at that time. And what do you think are some of the big successes that the land bank has had? So the land bank, otherwise known as my fourth child, because I do <laughs> love this thing so much. So, but it, it, you know, it's a lot from from my time earlier at the city mm-hmm. and being a neighborhood person. So after the financial crisis in 08 or 09, people started calling my office like they're going through foreclosure. They can't, you know, they're getting eviction notices. They don't know what to do, and that's because these banks issued all these mortgages, and then. People stopped paying because the economy tanked, but also the mortgages were unsustainable in many ways, balloon yeah. payments, all this other stuff. So then the the bank started the process, but in Chicago, one of the most damaging manifestations of the foreclosure crisis was we had 10 judges in foreclosure court in the beginning, and that number didn't really change that much. And so it used to take like 80 days to get a foreclosure. It, it eventually took 600 days to process a foreclosure. So... As I and I had had relationships with a lot of the Southside Alderman Michelle Harris, who mm-hmm. is you know a woman that I, I I probably respect her more in city government than any person who has been around in the last generation, Tony Beale, others. So Michelle and I would drive around the neighborhood because Chatham is not that it's just west of Beverly, yeah. and you'd see neighborhoods like Mary Nook and other places that had vacancies, and you think that's bananas. Like mm-hmm. this is a highly desirable neighborhood. What is going on? And the easy answer was like, oh, the banks aren't lending or they this. No, that's not the answer. The answer is the court system was insane yeah. and it took way too long. A house would be vacant on your block. You couldn't even figure out who owned it. Um, and so what we realized was the court system was too complicated for an average person to ever get a hold of that house. But once it be- went into foreclosure, became tax delinquent, it got into this other terrible rabbit hole of what's called the, the tax delinquency system in this county. I mean, if I were to trace the history of Chicago and Cook County through things like redlining and contract buying, we know about those. They were meant to keep black people from being in certain neighborhoods, certainly from buying houses or mm-hmm. accumulating wealth. But this, the property tax system in this in this city and in this county and the delinquency and the scavenger sale and the tax buyers, the fact that we let private tax buyers come in and benefit from this, that is no better than redlining. It is absolutely the child of redlining. Because once they made redlining illegal, then it went to contract buying, which is I'll sell you the house, but you never really own it. Yeah. You kind of lease it from me. And then once they made that illegal, then all of a sudden this this thing reared its head. And houses would get all this back taxes. They The house wasn't worth enough to buy it with the back taxes. And you got this very narrow set of people who figured out how to game the system. They had extremely powerful allies in Springfield, and the law just got more and more and more to their favor. Mm-hmm. You know, before the land bank came in, 
you just, no average person could come and buy a vacant house. Even vacant house have been sitting there for five or six years, 10 years and rehab it. So the land bank is in many ways just a hack for a broken system. And it's really, and it gets to this whole thing of not tolerating things for other people you wouldn't tolerate for yourself. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't tolerate a 10-year vacant rat-infested house or a 10-year vacant house on the north side or in a white neighborhood for a month Mm -hmm. or six months. They certainly wouldn't tolerate it for a decade. And the idea was that the only thing standing between it was this nonsense of an, you know, a constant running up of the of the meter on back taxes, is unconscionable. And so, we just started came in. So we came in and we cleared the title and tax ourselves. It took us two or three years sometimes. We hired a fleet of lawyers to figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we made mistakes. You know, we still we sell to people with a criminal record because we do and we don't ask questions. Sometimes, you know, it, it was a lumpy process, but this system has existed for 40 years. And we were the first ones to go in and really try and pull properties out of there. So, I mean, less than 10% of properties ever made it out of the, of the scavenger sale. So we're taking thousands wow. out now. So we're almost 2,000 houses that have been rehabbed, and they've been rehabbed by small developers, most of whom are black or Latino, and they live in the neighborhood. They, you know, we have this metric we call community wealth, which is we look at if we, when we get this vacant land and we clear the tax and title and we sell it to a developer, $3,000, $5,000, $7,000 for this home or this lot, sometimes fifteen, twenty, we, we record that number. And then we record the number when the developer sells it to a homeowner because mm-hmm. over 85% of what we do is for home ownership, and that's the point. We have created $171 million. That is the difference between what we sold the property to the developer for and now what it's sold to a homeowner for. And that's homeownership wealth that sits in the community. I'll give you an example. We uh, recruited five developers that we had worked with independently. We brought them together, and they bought six lots on 63rd and Evans. Mm-hmm. And so you might have seen this in the news last week. Benita Harris is the leader. There's, they're amazing. I love them all. But we sold for $6,000 these lots because they had been vacant for probably 12 years, I think was the average. Yeah. They built 30 units of housing. And now that property that we sold for six thousand is worth eight point eight million. Wow! Because each of those thirty homes is selling for about anywhere between two eighty to three hundred and fifty, three hundred eighty thousand dollars, and that's all for home ownership. And the idea that that no one ever bothered to just come in and proactively clear the title and the and the taxes, and you know, so is is not acceptable. So the land bank, as I said before, it's a, it's a hack for a broken system. It, it will it will stick around as long as the city makes it so hard to develop. I mean, it is, it's almost impossible for a small developer to get through the gauntlet of the 7,000 things you need to do yes. at the city because they, you know, look, and I have taken lots of bats in the face in the paper, you know, <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of things to criticize. But at the end of the day, who cares? Yeah. Because we've developed a couple thousand units of housing and we're, and there's thousands more in the pipeline. We've also built hundreds of businesses with these small developers, and there is zero reason that shouldn't have been done 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. But every time you get a bad story, you have a desire to protect yourself. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask for an affidavit. Now I'm going to ask for another check. Now I'm going to prohibit this group of people from getting involved. Or now I'm going to skip that kind of neighborhood because that's too risky. And then you end up being in bubble wrap and no one gets anything done. Mm-hmm. So here we are. You know, it's it's 10 years in, and we'll see – if the new mayor feels differently about it. Um, but we're just keeping on, keeping on. And in my mind, like, I don't want to live next to a vacant house yeah. and neither does anybody else. So 
I could see why you say it's your fourth child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do love it. Let me ask you this. Um, yeah. as you, so you've blazed this really impressive um, career for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many people look up to you and, and, you know, and aspire to be like you. As you think about your life and career, mm-hmm. what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, God, that's a good – you know – my dad died four years ago, so it was just four years in March, and he was a phenomenal man. I don't know if you ever knew him, but, you know, he was so dedicated to our neighborhood. He was so involved in things, and everywhere I would go, I would run into people who knew him and loved him, and uh, he made all the – and he would say, they would say, God, he is a really good man. Mm-hmm. And so if I think about what I want my legacy to be, I want it to be that, you know, obviously the people's lives are better, um, but I would be happy if – like like happened to us at my dad's wake, people that I barely knew showed up and and told a story about how he helped them, what he did, you know, something quiet behind the scenes, but it really made a difference for them. Yeah, like that's what I want my legacy to be. Okay, and that that is the perfect segue into <laughs> my last question of the okay. interview, which is, who is Bridget Gaynor in your own words? Um, you know, I I I love my city. Mm-hmm. And I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I love my children and, you know, hopefully they've returned the favor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm someone who who works hard and wants to push things to be better. But, uh, you know, interested in people and things, interesting, hopefully, to the outside world. Um but when I'm uh, at the end of the day, you want people to just be able to say, yeah, she's a really good person. I'm glad I knew her. I love it. Yeah. Commissioner, thanks for joining today. And thank you for continuing to be a leader oh, in this city that actually is leading with integrity um, and is really focused on creating better outcomes for all communities. I love it. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. That's great.